This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Now you need to forward and get me out of work, 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 a lot of people out there work, work, working. The jobs number, it was a blowout in the famous word of Carol Masser, WOA. It's a WOA moment. That's what we were saying when we saw the headlines cross. When we look at the jobs number, we look at unemployment, and especially when we talk about wages. Lindsay Piegza is here with us, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Chicago. So, Lindsay, you've had a few hours now to digest this, see the market reaction, and dig into it a little bit. What's the context that we need to be thinking about this in going forward? Well, I think if we just look at this number alone, it certainly does support the idea that we're seeing a strong labor market. And this reinforces the Fed's decision to take a pause, presumably at next week's FOMC meeting. There were some job gains included because auto workers were going back to uh, to work after a six-week strike. There's also widespread gains, though, across manufacturing, education, and health. So, again, if we just look at this morning's number, it does paint a relatively rosy picture of the labor market. But this morning's number does not explain away the waning momentum that we've seen over the past several months, a very well-established slower pace of hiring, which has restrained that trailing average well below 200,000. So I think it's too soon to say that we're back at a turning point. And this morning's report is going to be pointing to a more robust, higher trend in hiring going forward. So what do you need to see, Lindsay? You need a couple more months at this level for you to say, okay, we can continue this? Absolutely. I'm going to need to see several more months of robust hiring, as well as uh, I'm going to need to see this coupled with the committee's expected rise in inflation to really say that the economy and specifically the labor market is back on track. And we just have not seen that yet. Inflation continues to wane below the committee's 2% objective. And then when we look outside the labor market, there's very clear signs that the economy has not yet stabilized, even with 75 basis points of cuts. We're still seeing manufacturing pull back. Investment is very weak. And so the labor market alone, just on this morning's report, while the market seems to be celebrating it, doesn't necessarily paint the broader picture of what we're seeing in the economy. Lindsay, don't you think the market's celebrating that the Fed is probably going to stay on hold as a result? And that's what it's really about. Well, I think the market's celebrating the fact that this is a a data point that uh, the Fed can focus on to justify their thesis that going forward, the economy is going to continue to meet that 2% objective and inflation 2% target on growth. So the market's really celebrating this data point that suggests the Fed may have gotten it correct. Well, and as you play this out also, Lindsay, and I believe you pointed this out in in your uh, initial reaction that you shared with uh, your clients, this notion that this also may bolster consumer confidence a little bit as we're all settling down into serious shopping season here. I was talking uh, with my wife this morning and saying, all right, this weekend, I at least need to sit in front of a laptop, if not go to a mall. Uh, Does this give people a little bit more comfort about spending a bit more? 
Absolutely. Talk about perfect timing. This was the key report that consumers are going to be focused on to give them a sense of what they can expect next year in terms of potentially their individual financial footing, as well as the overall direction of the economy. And again, if you buy into this morning's number, this says all things are are full steam ahead. And so I do think that consumers are going to feel a little more confident when they're out at the malls or, as you said, in front of their computers, picking up those holiday presents. Hey, Lindsay, I do wonder, too, though, as we see, you know, the job market, you know, still chugging along and certainly by this morning's report more than that. um, How do you make how do you reconcile that with kind of still a, you know, meh look outlook when it comes to growth? How do we you know, how do we get our head around that? Yeah, there seems to be this this disconnect. Um, and remember that, that payrolls are suggesting at least part of the equation for the economy is still in positive territory. So we're not necessarily projecting the idea that we're falling off a cliff, but we seem to be losing momentum. And, and one disconnect that I, that I continue to point to is what we're seeing in terms of wages. Wages are growing at about a 3% pace, which is pretty moderate. However, if we were truly talking about such a low level of unemployment, uh, we would easily have been talking about maybe three and a half, four, four and a half percent wage gain for quite some time, as opposed to just recently in the last year or so. So what we're seeing is there still are a lot of people being left behind in this labor market recovery. We see an increased reliance on part-time, temporary gig employment, which, of course, if you're jumping from job to job, continues to contribute to the payroll number each month. But it's the same individual regaining that temporary employment. So there's a lot of different factors that are going in that don't necessarily, again, point to the idea that the labor market is quite as strong as the Fed seems to be telling us. All right, we're going to leave it there. Lindsay Piegza, thank you so much, Chief Economist for Stiefel Financial, joining us on the phone from Chicago. I mean, this was probably even better than a lot of people expected. I mean, Lindsay's note of caution, though, I think is really important, though, in terms of this whole picture. Uh, you know, we hear that from Carl Riccadonna, our chief right. U.S. economist as well, that you sort of have to take a wider view, maybe not get so excited. But this is, as Lindsay also said, an incredibly well-timed report on a number of fronts, not just politically, but for consumers out there. I'm just going to say, and I love the headline, that we've got U.S. jobs just blew the roof off. I mean, by any measure, though, and even in taking into account the G- jobs coming back, if you factor that out, still a pretty strong month, considering where we are in this cycle. We'll have to see what happens, certainly in the next month. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, Carol Master along with Jason Kelly on this Friday. Looking forward to the next guest. Jason, they've been calling it, or at least it's been described as the TJ Maxx of grocery store. Oh, so, I'm in. Right? I know, that's what I was thinking. Just, just tell me where to sign up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, I don't know if treasure hunting, as they describe uh, TJ Maxx. Look, I found some great Oh, my goodness. It's a gala apple. Anyway. I'm really looking forward to hearing their strategy and how you compete against Amazon. Because when you talk about groceries or retail in general, you got to factor in Amazon. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Friday. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. Grocery Outlet, they have been described as the TJ Maxx of grocery stores. Here to talk about exactly what the company is up to. Eric Lindbergh, CEO of Grocery Outlet, based in Emeryville, California, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Welcome. Thank you. So tell us what you're doing. Yes, uh, Grocery Outlet, two very unique principles that sort of drive our business. One's the buy. We buy opportunistically, so you said it, TJ Maxx uh, of food. So we partner with consumer product goods manufacturers buying 
opportunistic product, that's product that can't go to the primary channel, uh, ends up in our stores at a great discount. Uh, opportunistic to us means you're saving the customer 40 to 70% savings. Why can't it go to the regular channels, though? You know, it's, like, I get um, TJ Maxx, maybe there's yeah, something, or I don't know. It, you know, food is fashion, right? So it's um, mm. they're going to change the box, they're going to change the flavor profile, they're going to change the size, they're going to downsize, they're going to upsize, they're going to add a promotion, you know, for the holidays. That's all fashion, right? And so the retailers that are buying products from, you know, you name it, CPG, they want the latest and greatest. They don't want the promotion that was last month. So that creates a lot of churn in the supply chain. And that's what Grocery Outlet's been sort of addressing for, you know, call it the last 50, 60 years. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. This is a family business. This has been that's a, right. this is not, you know, some, you know, you hear Emeryville, California, like Silicon Valley, here comes someone <laughs> sort of disrupting everything, but you've been doing this for quite some time. Tell us about that. Yeah, we have. So uh, Jim Reed started the business back in 1946. He um, was the first one to identify sort of the excess inventory post-war uh, with the excess real estate in San Francisco. And he put the two together in these fabulously, you know, kind of fun stores. Uh, back in the 50s. Uh, his sons took over the business in the mid-70s and ran it uh, really up until third generation. Uh, me and, and my, my uh, cousin-in-law, McGregor, took over the business in 2005, 2006. And um, so it's, it's third generation, um, pretty much staying you know, very much in the niche that we operate in, and that's the, the uh, opportunistic sourcing. That's gotta be important, I feel like, in the retail space, whether it's grocery or otherwise, you've gotta have a clear identity. Right? Yes. If I go to Trader Joe's, I know what I'm getting, whether it's Whole Foods or some other market. Like, you gotta have a clear identity here. Yeah, you really do, and you, you were saying it earlier, um, you know, we're a niche retailer. There's so many distractions in retail today. Yeah. Um, it's very easy to sort of add to your list of things that you're going to do. We talk about the list of things we're not going to do. Mm. It's very, very important. Like what? Um, you know, look, we'll jump right into e-commerce, right? So we don't have an e-commerce offering. We don't have any strategy to have that. We think the, the store is the reason to visit. It's a brick and mortar. Um, it's a very convenient store. It's a treasure hunt. You have to get to the store to find out what's there. Yeah. The inventory is turning over all the time. The savings are worthwhile for the trip. Um, and so that's something we could spend a lot of resources and, and brain capacity on and maybe not be successful. Um, I think there are a lot of retailers out there that are in the e-commerce business that if they told you the truth might not want to be in it because they're not making any money. Right. Um, so that's just one example. But um, we've been a niche player for years. We've, we've stayed on this opportunistic sourcing. The other piece that's very unique about our business is the independent operator. Mm -hmm. So we turn over the store operation to what generally is a husband-wife couple or a partnership, and they run the store. So they hire the labor in the store. They interact. They live in the community. They order the product. They're the merchant of their own local grocery outlet, and they split the gross profit margin of the four-wall unit with us. 50, so is it 50. a franchise then, essentially? It's not a franchise. It's oh. like a franchise. Okay. Um, you know, it's probably more akin to a, um, uh, a Chick-fil-A, although okay. Chick-fil-A is a, is a franchise. But they're independent operators. Right. Um, they come to us, you know, with, with a long resume of experience, but not, you know, they're not investors who want to buy 10 stores. There's one operator running one store. And, uh, you know, they have, they have the great American retail dream. Like, it's the greatest role. They've come out of retail. They've got a lot of experience. Now they open up a grocery outlet. There's no upside limit to what they can make. Um, they're independent. Smart, right. yeah. smart model. And so you're publicly traded and public investors, they want growth, they tend to want expansion. Uh, you've just described things that would make it feel like this is hard to scale in many ways. Uh, so how do you grow this? Yeah, so uh, slowly, methodically, as we have the last 10 years. So 
Um, the algorithm for us is, you know, solid uh, one to three uh, comp sales. Um, this is our 16th year positive comps. Uh, we're pretty proud of that mm. statistic. And then 10% uh, new unit growth. So we're very hard pressed. We look at the map of the U.S. Um, to say that you can't have a grocery outlet in any town or, or every town. So we think we've got decades and decades of growth. Um, we're pretty conservative people by nature. Um, we've been doing this for you know three generations and um we love the growth and uh it's it's been a lot of fun we think we can do do it for for many more decades i'm like fascinated by it so expansion because most of your most of it's on the west coast yeah yeah just so get, california oregon seconds. washington idaho nevada would be sort of 90 percent of our stores we do have an outpost in pennsylvania we bought a business down in pennsylvania a few years back really to get access to supply yeah, yeah. um huh. so okay. many suppliers had said to us over the years when you come into the east coast right and so we bought this business um, that was somewhat related to us, similar DNA, a family business uh, owned by the Mitchell family. And um, that's been our outpost. We've got warehousing, buying, and stores, now about 20 stores, branded grocery outlet bargain market in Pennsylvania. We think that's a, a, a really good spot for us to grow from. Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Got it. The next 150 stores. Well, let All us right. know how things are going. Come on back. Absolutely. Yeah, Love come back and see Very you sometime. Cool. And we got to go check it out next time we're on the West Coast. Eric Lindbergh, CEO of Grocery Outlet, based out in Emeryville, California, here with us in New York City. Hat tip to our colleague, Andrews Mellon, uh, who brought us this great guest. All right, so one of the most read stories, I think, in the magazine and one of the must-read stories in the magazine this week has to do with a case that may may come before the Supreme Court, and it's about homelessness, arguably one of the biggest, biggest social issues of our time. Let's understand what's going on and what it may mean. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The two authors of the piece, they join us from the West Coast. Noah Buhayer is a finance reporter for Bloomberg. He's in our Seattle bureau. And Esme Dupre, she is a PI reporter, projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. And I should point out, these are two of the cities in America that are grappling with homelessness in arguably one of the most meaningful and and trickiest ways out there. So Esme, I want to start with you. Uh, Help us understand the context of this case. So on a constitutional level, this, this case really comes down to the blurry line between status and conduct. So the law can't punish you for being homeless, but the question is, what about actions you must take because you're homeless, such as sleeping on the street when the shelters are full and there's nowhere else to go? So this case, it's called Martin v. the City of Boise. Um, it will really, it, you know, might be a chance for the Supreme Court to really address this issue that courts and legal scholars have been trying to entangle for years, which is this issue of conduct versus status. Um, on a practical level, I should note this case is really about how how far governments can go in passing laws that criminalize homelessness, which is one of the ways that we've seen a lot of cities nationwide on the West Coast, but also all over, um, address this problem of homelessness and, and the growing visibility of the problem. So, guys, this, this is a, also, you know, part of this falls into the courts. And what's interesting here is like it's a really a West Coast theme here in part because of the jurisdiction. Can you talk about why this is such a West Coast thing as well? 
Yeah, sure. I can take that. Um, so it's, it's a West Coast thing because the case was initially brought in Boise and then it was appealed to the Ninth Circuit, which uh, covers a territory from Alaska down to Arizona. So while the homelessness situation in Boise is nothing, it just completely pales in comparison to what you see in Los Angeles or Seattle, um, the, the decision at the appellate court level um, means that uh, right now, the ruling that stands is that you, you can't have, have these bans on camping. You can't criminalize homelessness if, if uh, you know, the shelters are full and there's nowhere else for someone to go. So even though it's a decision, it's a court case out of Boise, uh, it's something that, that folks in cities all throughout the West have had to deal with. So what are the implications here? Like if, if, uh, if, if you know, these are legal, deemed legal to, you know, be able to sleep in a tent under a freeway or, you know, uh, on my, my hometown of Portland, Oregon, you know, there's been tent cities. What, what is that? What does this begin to look like potentially for for these cities? I can take that. Um, well, so first of all, the the impact is already in effect. So this ruling of the Ninth Circuit is 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 I mean, it's the law of the land right now in the Ninth Circuit that cities can't, you know, enforce bans on camping. Um, so we've already seen some impacts. For example, in Sacramento County, you know, park rangers have stopped issuing people to, you know, issuing citations that for people to camp. Um, the city of Thousand Oaks, which is just near L.A., amended its ordinance to restrict sleeping on public property to nighttime hours. So it really, like on a practical level, it really restricts what governments can do to um, to address the homelessness issue. And for advocates of the homeless, they say that's a good thing. It's really an opportunity to get creative uh, for governments. You know, they they say that gov- that laws criminalizing homelessness don't work. They're unethical, but they're also ineffective and they're costly. And so this is a good thing. If, if cities can't arrest their way out of homelessness, out of the homelessness problem, they are going to have to look at other options such as building housing and, you know, look to mental health services and whatnot. Um, other ways that might be more effective and cost-effective to address this problem. I have to say this is a must-read, and I love that this story basically gets into, you know, is housing a basic human right? I mean, it really, we would think about this so differently. Noah, so what's the likelihood that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, will take up this case? Well, I mean, I think that's a, it's a great question. It's, it's obviously hard to know. Um, on the one hand, you had 20... Um, amicus briefs here. So cities, uh, business groups, a wide range of actors have basically uh, asked the Supreme Court to to review um, the Ninth Circuit's decision, and they're um, siding with with Boise here. Uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, if you look at the case record, some of the uh, the advocates for for the homeless, um, they've said that there's no real true split. Um, in the appellate courts, and usually that's something that the Supreme Court looks for when they decide whether they're going to weigh in on a case, that they, they want to see a split um, at, at the lower court level to, um, to you know, acknowledge that it's, it's an area that they need to come in and, and, and uh, decide which, you know, which side is right. So the other legal element here that I just want to spend a little bit longer on, because I thought it was fascinating, is this idea of status and that conduct and status are sort of two different things but disentangling them has been uh difficult uh what what is that what is that what does that mean exactly and why is it so relevant here 
The Supreme Court has has ruled that. So take uh, Supreme Court precedent has said that you can't prosecute somebody for being an alcoholic, for example, but you can or sorry, for being a narcotics addict. That was a a Supreme Court precedent that we have from decades ago. So you can't prosecute someone for being um, addicted to narcotics. But you can in another case, they decided that you can prosecute somebody for being drunk in public. So really, this line is so blurry when it comes to homelessness, because are you know you're not able to prosecute someone for being homeless like we said at the at the outset but what about actions you must take when you are homeless such as sleeping outside um, when you have nowhere else to go so when judge um, when when one of the judges was writing for the ninth circuit she wrote quote conduct at issue here is involuntary and inseparable from status they are one and the same given that human beings are biologically compelled to rest so this is this, you know, conduct versus status question that's really, you know, murky, but that courts and legal scholars have been trying to disentangle for years. And this case might really allow the Supreme Court to come in and weigh in on this conduct versus status question when it comes to homelessness specifically. The the thing that I know, Noah, you've written about this extensively is about affordable housing. And and is there anybody who looks at this and and also says, you know what, there's actually this whole other solution that needs to be talked about in the same breath here? Is, did you guys run into anybody like that during Esme, your reporting? Esme, just got about 20 seconds here. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's certainly part of the conversation. I don't think anyone's on either side of this is debating that you need more affordable housing. That's part of the solution. Just the question is, uh, should government's hands be tied? And can you can you, um, you know, issue citations for someone who who's homeless and is out on the street in a place where there's not enough shelter? All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Hey, guys, thank you so much. It's a definite must-read, this uh, story in the magazine that's on newsstands now and also online, of course, at Bloomberg.com, BusinessWeek.com as well. Our thanks to Noah Buhayer, finance reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone in our Seattle bureau. Esme Deprez, our projects and investigations reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from L.A. And, of course, Jill Weber right here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, editor of Business Week. We have somebody from the Great White North. We're talking about Canada, of course. Uh, fascinating next guest who has disrupted the real estate scene, but we also want to talk about the innovation scene when it comes to Canada. Regan McGee is founder and CEO of Noble Corporation, as I mentioned, uh, from Canada, based in Toronto specifically, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So talk to us a little bit about, because I feel like every country, every major city likes to talk about their innovation scene because uh, everybody wants to have technology as a part of their local economies or you know country economies. Tell me a little bit about what's going on in Canada specifically. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, there's, there, the growth in Canada has been explosive and there are a few cities in Toronto or in Canada that have been really pr- the primary for, uh, focuses for the growth. Uh, Toronto is the biggest for sure. Uh, Montreal, there's a lot of AI and mm-hmm. machine learning happening in Montreal. And then there's a fair amount in Vancouver as well. Why? Um, I think, uh, so I think there are a few kind of main reasons. Um, one of the, 
I, I love the, the United States, and I don't mean this as a knock at all. But one of the uh, one of the benefits is having healthcare that's just provided. Mm. So if you start, uh, if you go to a startup, you don't have to worry about losing your healthcare or anything. And that can be, I mean, that can be you know a, a really big deciding factor for people. So you don't have the same issues with uh, you know job security, t- you know, tied to your, your life potentially, right? So you can actually mm. take a you can take a risk. You can go to a startup, and uh, yes, yeah, so that's that's helping a lot. Uh, there are a lot of big tech events happening in Canada. Um, which get us a lot of international attention. And one of the great things that comes out of those tech events is we get a lot of talent from around the world. Uh, it's really easy to get a work visa in Canada if you have a technical skill set. So a lot of my developers, for instance, uh, they would have visa issues in the United States, but they can work in Canada. So we, uh, my company in particular, more than half of my company is born outside of Canada. And they're able to you know, get master's degrees in software development all over the world, and then they come and they work for us. So it's, mm. it's really fueling it. Um, it's uh, there also are quite a few government programs in right. place. So there are tax incentives. There, are, I mean, there's the scientific research and uh, experimental development program, which is huge. Uh, we just got over a million dollars from that uh, a couple of weeks ago. We got about half a million dollars from a program called the IRAP Industrial Research Assistance Program. So there, there are lots of programs with you know meaningful amounts of money that that a lot that of helps initiatives yeah. that support it. Yeah, and uh, and there's I mean there's a great education system there too. So there's a lot of homegrown talent. I mean, uh, I went to the same university as Elon Musk, uh, mm-hmm. although I'm almost ten years younger than him. But uh, yeah. I mean, we we went to a fantastic school. There's a lot of innovative people that come out of it. Um, there are lower salaries in Canada, so. You know, for for developers looking at moving there, that that could be a potential challenge. Although when you look at our cost of living, it's it's substantially right. lower as well. So let's talk a little bit about your company, Noble, because you know, as an emblematic uh, type of company, and, and you referred to it in sort of the way you're leveraging some of the strengths of of the Canada market and the Toronto market specifically. I mean, this is an area. Let's be honest, that was ripe for disruption. Yeah. You know this uh, from your background. <laughs> Tell us what you do. So I do know that firsthand. And uh, uh, I got my real estate license almost 10 years ago when I was working at a fund and it was to trade my fund. Uh, when I got my, before I got my license, it made no sense to me to be paying commission that I was paying um, for very, very little output. And then when I got my license, it became even more clear how little I was actually, you know, how little value for money I was getting. Um, Canada, you, you just talked uh, talked a bit about, you know, the market update, a market recap. Um, we just had uh, a report come out two days ago that said half of Canada's GDP growth is residential real estate commission. More than one per- <laughs> yeah. What? Yes. <laughs> More than 1% of the United States GDP's residential real estate commission. I mean, this is a huge market. The disruption is so, so overdue. Um, yeah, it's one of those amazing things when I talk to... Uh, Wait, know, half of Canada's GDP growth. is... Growth. Oh, growth. Yes. Is... Residential real estate commission. That's nuts. That's yeah. bananas. Yeah. Uh, that, that is unbelievable. Because what you oh. do, I just want to make sure people understand it out there, you're essentially a, a matching engine to yeah. some extent, right? You sit right in the midst of buyers, sellers, and brokers. Kind exactly. of like a Tinder for real estate, right? Uh, yeah, that's not bad. Um, so, so he's going to use that. It's funny. We've been called a few things. We've been called the Expedia for real estate, the Uber for, for real estate, the Amazon for real estate. So, so what we do is, if somebody goes on our platform, they look, they're looking to buy or sell real estate. Right. They put in some basic information about what they're looking for, um, and then agents bid on their business, and they're competing on price. Uh, they're, they're, so how much they're going to charge? Uh, you're going to see their, you see their track record. You see reviews from people that have actually used them, startings from people that have actually used them. We're the only consumer-centric marketplace in the world. 
And for me, this was kind of obvious. Uh, and we're scaling like absolutely like crazy now. We're, What's absolutely crazy? I am curious about the growth that you guys are seeing. So we're, our revenues are doubling every six months. Wow. Um, and yeah. expanding beyond what markets should we expect to see you in soon? Um, Hopefully a lot. Yeah. Uh, so there's a reason why I'm in New York right now. One of the challenges in Canada is raising growth capital. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of a lot of funding available for really early stage companies, but I mean that next stage. What the next do you need money really for hard. though? Because you're essentially a platform, right? And that's easy, I would assume, to scale up and, and branch out. Only to get other about markets. thirty seconds. Consumer marketing. Uh, so okay. we're our our real focus right now is Florida, and then shortly after that, Georgia and Texas, and and we we want to scale across the the entire United States fairly quickly. So we need to get consumers. So on even our though platform. you don't like our health care, <laughs> yeah. I love the United States, and I'm glad to be here. It's a big market. All right, just saying. Really interesting. We'd love to have you it's back cool. to uh, talk about all of this sometime soon. Regan McKee is founder and CEO of Noble, based in Toronto, here with us in New York City. Dave Wilson is in the house uh, with his chart of the day. What do you got? Looking at an industry group that's kind of touch and go this year. Oh, nice. And that would be energy, specifically yeah. within the S&P mm-hmm. 500. And by the way, that was Emerson, Lake, and LP. Powell. I was, I was trying it was the to one get... album where Cozy Powell took over for Carl Palmer on the drums. Ooh. So there you go. In any case... Just looking back at the history of the S&P 500 Energy Index, it goes back three decades. At least that's the amount of data we have on the Bloomberg terminal. And, you know, the last two years, it's been down. And this year, touch and go. I mean, Mm -hmm. just yesterday, even though it's the best performer today among the 11 main industry groups in the S&P 500, as of yesterday, it was only up 1.2% for the year. So, you know, one day's gain may not be enough, depending on how stocks perform from here, for the energy stocks to hold up. Uh, And if indeed they're down for the year, it would be the first time ever in that three-decade history that you saw three straight years of declines in the S&P 500 energy index. So, and even if you step back from that, I mean, this year still... Bad news. Right, right. I mean, given how much the S&P 500 has been up, you know, you're talking about energy trailing by more than 20 percentage points. And if that holds up, it would be the fourth time in the past six years that the group has been that far behind the broader index. So, you know, it's just really sort of a, a taking a look at what's happened, you know, with crude prices being right. down, with natural gas prices being down, with shale production being up, you name it. It all kind of comes together and you see it in the chart, which looks back 20 years because in the 1990s, there was never more than one year in a row that energy stocks Bell. If you want to know more, folks, send me an email. Get you the chart, the explanation that goes with it, and everything I do going forward. The email address is dwilson at bloomberg.net. That's dwilson at bloomberg.net. Dave Wilson, thank you so much. You will be back with us in just a bit with your stock of the day. All right, let's get to your most read story for the day across the Bloomberg terminal on a very busy Friday, beating out the jobs report, which is not easy to do. One of Wall Street's most lucrative businesses is at risk. Shanali Basik wrote it. It's in the latest edition of Bloomberg Markets Magazine. Shanali, welcome. And tell us what's at risk. This is a real, this This is a big thing on Wall Street right now. It, it is a hot debate. People get really 
testy about it, actually, because so many people believe the direct listing model can't become the main way to go public. Banks have spent forever underwriting IPOs, collecting that 7% fee. It's a $7 billion business. But now, when Silicon Valley tried to have this direct listing conference, they actually didn't invite the banks. But who did they invite? They invited Citadel Securities, one of the biggest market makers on the New York Stock Exchange, which was responsible for helping ensure smooth trading in direct listings like Slack. Well, and one of the things I find so interesting about that is it's not just that a certain category of bankers is being cut out. It's the big banks altogether. That feels like an even bigger deal than maybe we expected. So right now, it's still just a risk because in the current direct listing model, they cut out most of the banks, but not all of the banks. So Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, they Mm -hmm. have worked on the last two big high profile direct listings. But with that said, they collected more in fees with a smaller number of banks involved. So fees overall are lower, but a fewer number of banks get it right now. All right. So I'm just curious. So what is the big bank... um, Uh, sector kind of like looking at this and saying, okay, here's what we need to do. So the big bank sector, the biggest of the biggest are saying, oh, please, like, don't worry about it. We've got this. They have have to still contact a lot of the investors because in a direct listing, it could be very, very volatile. Right. But with that said, Citadel Securities is still a very significant upstart here. And they're definitely getting a role with Silicon Valley that they didn't have before. And so direct listings, I mean, there haven't been that many of them yet. You know, we had Spotify uh, and we had Slack, as you mentioned. Is this something that's going to catch on or will the traditional IPO sort of always be around in some form or fashion? Something that I think is interesting is, and although this proposal was rejected just today by the SEC, the New York Stock Exchange is looking to find a way to raise money in a direct listing, Ah. which really changes the fabric of how an IPO works. And NASDAQ is also working on their own types of proposals. Uh, Airbnb is looking at this model for next year. And then also- So just um, go straight to the exchange. straight to the exchange. DoorDash is considering it, which is even more interesting because they don't turn a profit. Usually you don't need money to do this model, but... But but I just feel like because there's so much pressure on these companies, right, to be profitable, it's expensive to do the roadshow and do that whole circuit. And if you're raising so much money, like DoorDash has raised billions of dollars in private markets, why do they need to pay their banks 7% and then go public? Why can't they raise money Mm. separately and then find a way to get... This is a liquidity event, right? It doesn't need to be a capital raising event. All right. It's a great story. The most read, printed out, read it this weekend. It's a really important moment on Wall Street. Also, subscribe to Shanali Basik's newsletter. It's called Wall Street Beat. If you go on the Bloomberg terminal, there's a button you can hit. Uh, you can also find that on LinkedIn. I Shanali do Basik. wonder if in like five years we'll have rest in peace IPO or uh, 10 years. Rip IPO. Rip IPO. There you go. Right. It's very clever. A lot of letters. There you go. All right. Shanali Basik, thank you so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
All right, it's time for the drive to the close before Carol Masser just hauls off and smacks me. Uh, I don't hit people. No, 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 no. Just use your words. Just just, use your words. (laughs) Honey, use your words. All right. Brent Schutte is with us, Chief Investment Strategist for Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. They're looking after about $150 billion. He joins us on the phone from Milwaukee. Brent, great to have you back with us. Thanks for having me. I, I always like being on your show, not just because I enjoy talking to you guys, but your lead-in music. I'm a child of the 80s, and that music is fantastic. <laughs> it just takes you home, right? It, it just sort of takes, takes you, you back, puts you in a good mindset. I mean, speaking of good mindsets, market's feeling pretty good today after that jobs report. Are we right to be as optimistic as we collectively seem to be as I look at all this green on the screen? Well, that comment goes day by day, because certainly yeah. a couple of days ago we weren't optimistic. Right. But, but the answer is yes. I, I mean, I think when we look underlying the fundamentals of the U.S. economy, we've long said that beneath this political fog, this uncertainty, this noise, there is a normal economic business cycle still ticking, and you can hear it if you listen closely, and it's still healthy. And I think the jobs data really drives that home. You have wages rising, people rejoining the labor force, and the only reason we see to have a recession or to be concerned is the president overplays his hand with regard to tariffs, which mm. kind of got walked back a bit this week. So, yes, I would say um, it's right to be positive. We're kind of in a good spot right now from the standpoint of the economy. I mean, Brent, can we go so far as to be like, come on, the U.S. and China, they're not going to screw this up completely when it comes to trade. They understand that both benefit by having some kind of trade agreement going forward. So can we make the assumption that even if it's phase one, even if it's a small trade deal, it's going to get done? That's the assumption we've operated under. And so Mm -hmm. that goes back and forth with the daily proclamations, but that's a negotiation. And so you have to almost have the other side believe that you don't want that. When it boils down to it, we simplify this thing pretty down to the core. I think there are three things that matter to the president. One, the economy, two, the markets, and three, getting reelected. And so at the end of the day, if something gets in the way of those three things, I think he is malleable. And so I do think that at the end of the day, there will be some sort of trade deal that gets done to make sure that as we go into the election year, the economy is still strong and the markets are still strong. Because without those, I don't think it gets reelected. And so as you look in the shorter term, Brent, uh, the really only major thing it feels like we have between us and the Christmas holidays is the Fed meeting next week. And as we very clearly remember from last year, it was kind of an ugly second half of December, an ugly Christmas Eve. Uh, To be very specific, do you worry about that? Or do you feel like the Fed has this in hand, especially given this jobs report now in its back pocket? Well, I'd say we have two things to worry about. One, we still do have the December 15th trade deadline, which we'll see Good what point. happens there. But from the Fed perspective, one of the biggest calls we've had for the past three or four years is that the Federal Reserve has no desire to end this economic cycle. The Fed used to try to moderate business cycles mm-hmm. and moderate inflation. Now they're there to enhance business cycles and enhance inflation. And so I think the narrative last year, the Fed got off track, the communication was wrong. They've completely pivoted. I think they have no desire to end the cycle. They're now, if they had any desire before, it's gone now from the lesson of the past year. And I think as you think about next year, I don't think there's any chance, even if the economy does get hot, the Fed can hike rates. One, Powell has said so himself, he's not going to hike rates, and it would take a really, really persistent rise in inflation before they even contemplate raising rates. And two, you have that election coming up, which the Fed has hiked in the past during election seasons. But just think back of all the back and forth between the president and the Fed. 
And recall that op-ed that Bill Dudley wrote in the New York Times, I believe, or the Wall Street Journal, suggesting that the Fed should contemplate thinking about how their actions may impact the election. I just don't think there's any way possible the Fed could hike, even if they wanted to. And so I think they're on the sidelines, at least from the standpoint of a hike, for at least a well, year. That's the key point, isn't it, Brent? That, And we talked about this earlier with our economics team, is that the bar is increasingly um, high for the U.S. central bank to raise rates. It doesn't mean, you know, so so the expectation is they might not cut anymore, but it's it's going to take a lot for them to actually start raising rates here. Absolutely. I think that the transformation of the Fed is complete. I think that's what they are now. They used to be what I said they were before, and now the bar is so high for them to raise. It doesn't mean they won't at some point in the future, mm-hmm. but I think the upside to inflation has to be pretty big before they actually contemplate doing it. Uh, and I think the other thing that's kind of shifted with the Fed is that when I was growing up in this industry, the Fed said they didn't listen to markets. Why did the Fed actually pivot last year or at the beginning of this year? It was because the markets changed, not because their forecast changed. And if you think about it, their forecast this year mm-hmm. may actually come to fruition. Yeah. They've cut rates three times. Yeah. And so I think that shows you know, kind of how this has evolved and where we are. I think it's a risk in the future. But for right now, I think your kind of coast is clear on the Fed side. All right. So, Brent, give us a sense of how you're thinking about investing and giving people advice through the balance of the year and maybe into the first part of 2020. Right. And so, you know, most people say, well, the market's gone up. How can you continue to think it goes higher? And I guess the market has gone up, yes, for the past year, but it's really been on the back of defensives. So think of REITs, think of utilities, think of staples, um, while other asset classes that are more cyclical in nature haven't done as well. Think small caps, think international stocks. Yeah. And so we do believe uh, that cyclical stocks will actually outperform, and we actually believe that small caps will provide extra value, too. Just to give an example of small caps, I mean, last year this time, the economy from a cyclical perspective was peaking. It then fell. And you also had the Fed, who was raising real interest rates. Those are bad backdrops for small caps. Fast forward to today, um, we just talked about the Fed. Real interest rates are negative. They're likely to remain negative. They've underperformed dramatically. Their valuation is cheap. And so we think that's an opportune environment for small caps. And one other thing, just um, to get this in, is that people aren't paying attention as much to the fact that Chinese data has actually turned. Mm. The LEI there is moving up, as is the world LEI. If that continues to happen in this cycle, I have a secret to tell you. International stocks have outperformed, and that has happened in the past. And if that happens next year, they may outperform again. Yeah, I think you're right about that in terms of the Chinese data points. I did want to ask you one thing just quickly about small caps. I mean, they're up about 21% as a group overall. We're looking at a P.E. of about 36 right now. Uh, S&P 500 up about 25% with a P.E. of almost 21. You still see value in small caps? Just got about 30 seconds here. We do. I mean, that's a value based upon um, just overall earnings. Uh, okay. If you look at different valuation measures, they're much cheaper. And I believe they've underperformed other asset classes by 30% in the last year or so, specifically REITs, a real estate investment trust. And so we do think there's opportunity there as the cycle turns and that we do, our measures show they're actually cheap. All right, going to leave it there. Hey, great to check in with you. Brent Schutte, your Chief Investment Strategist over at Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management, nearly $150 billion in assets under management, on the phone from Milwaukee. I love what he said, though, about what's on the mind of the president. Three things, the economy, markets, and getting reelected. Yeah, totally. And everything sort of feathers through that or that's the lens uh, or the prism through which we should be looking at things for sure thanks for listening to bloomberg business week you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com you can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m eastern only on bloomberg radio